My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 19, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Thou shalt not kill. Sixth Commandment. Weissman had increased his speed to 40 miles an hour. It was just pulling around the bend of the southern mountains. His eyes were sore, and the constant squinting had given him a slight headache. Although the snow had stopped, the hilly roads were essentially unplowed and very slippery. He looked at his watch. It was two o'clock in the morning. The Porsche, in low gear, took the inclines well. Weissman reached the top of the hill. He would head for the hospital and get martyr, and then over to Mrs. Dooley to get the children before he got out of town. But as he came around the ledges, he couldn't believe what he saw. He shifted into second gear, confused by the fires burning all over the town. He immediately thought of Jamie and what was going on, even though he had reasoned it out a few hours before. He wondered if the town was at the mercy of forces from the power plant. He sped down the highway at over 70 miles an hour, whizzing by the farmhouses, the frozen swamps, and into the town. The flames danced all around, and there were people in the streets scattered at first as he slowed, all of them walking in a strange manner, set to murder. He could see the fiery red glows as he slowed and passed the people. And now, he was very much aware how Martyr had been right all along. Weissman brought the Porsche to a crawling speed now, weaving around the wandering people who banged on the car. They were deliberately trying to throw themselves in front of the car. A bottle smashed against the grill of the Porsche and someone cracked the passenger window with a sizable rock. He kept going until he hit a woman by accident as she leaped on the hood of the car. He jammed on the brakes, stopping suddenly. The wild and frenzied citizens of St. Argus converged on his car. He skidded away and headed toward the clinic. He had to take Martyr out of this town and get her away for good. Martyr was running on the campus of St. Argus College. Since the college was outside of the town proper, there weren't any people in view. She could, however, hear screaming and gunshots toward town, and she was nearing the point of exhaustion. Her body had been injured so many times, she felt as though she couldn't take another step. She made her way up to the administration building, pulling open the glass door and fell into the lobby. The first time that evening, she actually felt safe. She let her heart pound against the linoleum until it leveled off to a normal rate. It was all so quiet inside the building. She could hardly believe the bedlam that was taking place in the town outside. Bernie, Bernie, I have to get to Bernie. He has to be back by now. He'll go to the clinic if he makes it. Oh, God. Bernie, you have to go to Mrs. Dooley's house. I don't even know where Mrs. Dooley's house is. You have to get my kids. You have to protect them from this madness, Bernardo. Got a call, got a call. Tell them, tell them, Bernardo. I'm right out here. He'll get me away. Bernie will get me away from death. She pushed her way upward, grabbing onto a chair. Hobbling noticeably, she made her way over to the public phone and reached into her parker. The dime felt like a 20-pound weight as she dropped it in the slot. She dialed the clinic, but when they answered the line, she could hear people shouting and moaning in pain. The madness was spreading. Hello, hello, she cried. Nurse Hoyle, 
This is Marta Pendleton. There was no reaction. I said this is Marta Pendleton. Look, honey, I got a room full of injured people, half dead and half alive, and more upstairs, unless you have something vital to tell me. Bernie Weissman. Is Bernie Weissman there? No, Weissman isn't here. When he comes in, I can't hear you, she said above the noise. I said, when Weissman comes to the clinic, tell him I'm in the administration building at the college. Yes, I'll tell him. I have to go. This place is a mess. She said, and the line went dead. Marta slowly put the receiver back on the hook. In the middle of the eerie silence, people were now out on the grass, and they could see her inside. She had thought she was so safe. Now she was on the run again. Her life was being challenged by yet more people who had been taken over by the bundles. She whisked herself around and ran down the stairs into the basement. Hiding there was her only objective now, because she was too tired and in too much pain to continue fleeing. She whisked herself around and ran down the stairs to the basement. Hiding was her only objective now, because she was far too tired and in too much pain to continue fleeing. There was an outside entrance in the basement offices, but people were now milling around that entrance too. She entered the underground tunnel that led to the college's 26-story library. The sound of trampling footsteps rumbled across the ceiling. She ran wildly as the tunnel twisted and turned deep underground. All was clear until she rounded the corner by a series of supply closets. Two men struggled with each other about 20 feet ahead. They punched, shoved, and kicked as they moved right into the closet. Soon they fought their way back into the corridor one of them had a bottle in his hands. He retreated and had time enough to unscrew the cap. She could read the label, even at that distance. It had a skull and crossbones under the words hydrochloric acid. No, no! Shouted the other man, but there was no stopping the man with the bottle, and he hurled the open bottle right at the man's head. The acid erupted in a spray of skin-eating bubbles. The man screamed in unbelievable agony as he ran right toward Marta. Scorched segments of his flesh hung from his cheekbones. He reached out for Marta, but his hands had been eaten away, with only the bony appendages left to rip off her parker. She twisted out of it as he fell to the floor. His eyes were now extremely bright, and she could see the healing process was beginning already. The creatures, the bundles, had moved directly from the Amenti region into his brain. His eyes glowed red now like the others, but she had other things to worry about. The second man saw an opportunity and rushed her. She turned into one of the side classrooms, scouring past the desks and chairs as he chased her in the dark. Even with her diminished strength, she had the ability to outwit him. Circling back to the other entrance, she moved into the underground corridor and toured the library. The attackers were underground now. Five men and a teenage girl rounded the corner behind her. They were all covered with blood and yelling viciously. When the man came out of the classroom, they sprung on him, violently tearing him to shreds. That gave Marta the time she needed to cross the underground corridor. She bolted the door shut, and for a while, she appeared to be safe. Weissman had evaded most of the street attackers, but his nice sports car was dented, with most of the windows cracked. He raced the car through the side streets and onto the hospital grounds. Even at that point, there were people meandering around like stragglers after a sporting event. He skidded up to the emergency room door and hurried inside. When he opened the door, the people spread over the emergency room floor. Blood was everywhere, splattered on the tiles of the walls and spread over the green linoleum. Weissman hopped over the bodies on his way to the basement stairs. 
People were even in the stairwell, moaning or fighting as he leaped down the steps, knocking people flat over as he pushed open the broken basement doors. The situation inside the clinic below was no different from above. Doctors had gathered in the middle of the corridor by the nurse's station. People cried for help all around them. The doctors seemed involved with something. Weissman pushed his way to the center of the activity. They had gathered around a young man whose head had been sliced open from ear to ear by an oncoming truck. It was a gouge so wide, so deep, that no human being could actually survive it. But the doctors seemed spellbound. Underneath, where the brain tissue was normally present, was a huge bundle of light, center-perfect within the man's skull. It was extremely bright light, and faded to orange and then to red outside the rim of the skull. What astounded the doctors was the fact that the tissues on the outside of the man's head were healing. Never seen anything like it, said the flabbergasted Andrews. He turned to Casey, shaking his head in disbelief. What's going on here? Is this town gone mad? Another man, a technician, came running from a side room with a microscope slide in his hands. He had found something else. There's nothing. No cells, no tissue, nothing at all. Just a series of faint electromagnetic waves. It's like it doesn't exist at all. Well, that's impossible, said Andrews as he took the slide. But the time for reflection was short-lived as a crowd of angry people who had been taken over by the bundles came downstairs from the upper floor. They had somehow got automatic weapons and sprayed the glass door with bullets. Weissman dove over the counter and behind the nurse's station as other men scattered. Andrews was hit first, several dozen bullets ripping apart his green surgical coat and into bloody holes. He hit the floor and the blood splattered onto the wall. Valiantly, he attempted to crawl, but he must have lost most of the blood in his body. He was now yet another victim of the madness. Then the crowd confronted the doctors and staff directly. Where is she? Where's Marta? Well, she ran out, cried the nurse over the uproar. What? Where did she go? asked Weissman. The school administration building. She called here. Thank you, said Weissman as he arose. Now he was angry. No matter what it took, he was going to find her. He leaped over the desk and into the corridor. As he made a break for the front door, a man caught him by the shoulder. Weissman spun around and decked him with a single unorthodox punch and ran up the stairs to the first floor holding his bloody knuckles. He wasn't pleased by what he saw upstairs. The people who seemed dead just minutes before were now recovered and they had joined the other townspeople and doctors in a weird assemblage in the emergency room. As he entered the corridor, they seemed to move in one collective motion and now they had seen him. Without a second thought, he took several steps in the other direction, but people were gathering down the far end of the corridor. From both sides, they began to close in on him like grapes going to the press. Weissman, who in past years was content to retreat to the bottle, was not afraid to fight to the end. He rushed to the telephone and ripped the receiver from the wall. They were all cursing him in low, gurgling tones. That didn't frighten him. Undauntedly, he began swinging the receiver by the cord. His mind flashed back. He was a child again in the heart of the city. They were playing the game Red Rover, and he had to break through the opposing side's barricade. Only these people in the emergency room were playing for keeps. They didn't understand what he was doing. He ran forward with a rebel yell as he swung his weapon. Three of them were knocked to the floor. He kicked, pinched, and used the receiver to crunch them out of his path. One of them wielded a knife right into his thigh. 
He made it through the door, holding his side as he ran forward. The cold air stung the wound as he stood under the canopy. But he could still walk, and almost tripping over a metal pipe, he walked away from the hospital. It would be a formidable weapon, he thought, as he returned to the canopy to pick it up. He tapped the cold metal against his hand as he headed for his Porsche. The college was only two miles away. He could only hope that Marta had survived the onslaught. Marta sat against several filing cabinets in the base of the library. She caught her breath momentarily, but the attackers were pushing against the corridor doors. There seemed to be no hope for her. She was about to give up, even if she got out of the building. There'd be a hundred or more confrontation with thousands of mass murderers who now roam the streets of St. Argus. If it would only end. But that was an impossibility at this point. They were all geared to live and die in an eternal hell. At least she had a few minutes reprieve before the next onslaught. There was a noise in the upstairs room. Marta sat up quickly, getting to her feet, and squatted behind the reading tables. The lights came on brightly, and she definitely heard footsteps. Coming down the stairway was Harriet Dupont, her face bruised and bloody. But she walked without pain, as if the injuries were only a one-dimensional image. Marta, still tied to her old memories of her mother and conditioning, leaped to her feet and called out for her mother. She needed her mother like she did when she was a child, and Harriet's head snapped to the right. But her glowing eyes became affixed to her daughter. She said nothing and evidenced the same cunning smile as Jamie. Oh, mother! Mother! Help me, mother! Mother was in no mood to lend a helping hand unless it meant the death of her daughter. She waddled down the stairs, staring at Marta as she went straight to the desk in front of the stairs. Like a mindless machine, she opened the drawer and pulled out a long, silver letter opener. Marta backed against the bookshelves along the wall. Now, more people were breaking down the door to the underground corridor. And to go forward, she faced the unbelievable prospect of fighting her own mother. Mother, get back! Get back! Marta cried as she took a step forward. But the older woman had great resolve and continued to come after her daughter. Please put that down! Mother, she pleaded as the doors rattled. You are my daughter, said Harriet. She smiled briefly and then spoke. You will get the death you deserve. I hate you, Marta. You will live to die. Marta could hardly think straight as her mother uttered such debasing words. She ran forward, knowing that inside that woman was not really her mother. Her mother had ceased to exist as a human being when Jamie had killed her at the farmhouse. Something else had taken her over. Mrs. Dupont held the letter opener up in the air, jabbing it to the left, and then jabbing it to the right as Marta tried to pass. Marta bit her lip and psyched herself for the attack. She rushed forward as the lady swung the letter opener again. Marta pushed her to the floor on the follow-through. The older woman swung the opener again, this time embedding it deep into the carpet. Marta tried to rush by, but the woman blocked her path with the opener. Marta reached for the opener, and the two women started to struggle. They rolled across the floor, each trying to gain control of the opener. But Marta had youth on her side. She bent the knife upward, closer and closer to her mother's throat. Marta knew if she relinquished her grip, her mother would kill her in a second. No, mother! Stop this! Stop this! 
Allow yourself to die in pain, said Mrs. DuPont. The letter opener was on the verge of piercing her mother's throat, and Marta knew she had the strength to push it all the way through. I can't do this, yelled Marta as she couldn't kill her mother despite her changed morphology. She let the knife move downward to the carpet and then rolled away. The lady struck again, but Marta had gotten to her feet, and none too soon as the mob broke through the corridor doors. Marta ran up the lobby of the library, and she rushed for the revolving doors. She was not going through because there were more people outside, and when they saw her, they moved toward the entrance of the towering library. Marta retreated inward, toward the elevators in the core of the building. As she pounded on the elevator door, and nothing happened. They were breaking the outside glass and entering the lobby now. She had no choice other than to climb the stairs. It was a matter of despair and panic, a move that would leave her totally pinned within the library. As she rushed upward, they slowly and methodically poured into the building, looking for another victim for their solitary aims. Marta could see the faces imprinted in her mind as she struggled to get to the second floor. Hundreds and thousands of them, all unemotional and constrained, all intent on her destruction. The door to the second floor was constructed of a thick metal for fire purposes, and Marta opened it gradually. She did not want to run into another group of them. Slinking inside, she shut the heavy door and locked it solidly. It would be some time before they broke through the thick metal. But she was too frazzled to think ahead, and she stumbled across the floor. Survival was the only thing that mattered, and nothing else. Not even Bernie Weissman meant anything to her as she lay sprawled across the rug. Live. I've got to live, that's all. Simple and clear. Living is the only answer. I know that. To be human is to live and not to think of eventual death. Doesn't matter. Death happens and that's that. Thinking about it and fearing it accomplishes nothing but despair. I have to live no matter how bad it gets. Just to live. The peace of being alive, holding each day's most simple treasures in the palm of my hand, and I never knew, I never knew the meaning. The simple things once forgotten are so dear to me now, the things I will never sense again, because they are going to kill me now, just like they killed Jamie, Sandy, and Mitchie. I will be like them, without meaning, with no purpose other than the brutal starkness of perpetual death. She continued her thoughts out loud. I will never know the subtle beauty of the morning sun breaking onto another day on earth. I will be, f instead I will be filled with the death. Instead I will be filled with death and spread, and spread the death with my human hands. I will have the human body, but I will never know what it means to be human. Now they began pummeling the door. It was still holding firm, but it would eventually give way, and she would have to find somewhere to run. Weissman spun the Porsche around the narrow streets of the college. He knew he could probably drive the car right out of St. August and into freedom, but he needed to find Marta, even if it meant putting his own life on the line. She had never really explicitly said that she loved him, and he wasn't sure she ever would. But he was willing to face it all, no matter what she did or how she treated him. He couldn't help his actions. He loved her. Hastings' cruiser was parked outside the administration building. There were not very many people in the area. 
Perhaps there was some control now to this madness. He pulled right in back of the cruiser, convinced that Hastings could help him stop the deluge. Grabbing a hold of the pipe, he ran from the Porsche and into the administration building. Without that pipe, he would be at the mercy of the mob. Hastings! He yelled as he stepped inside the battered building. Hastings! He cried again, but there was no answer. Weissman held the pipe in both hands as he ran down the stairs into the basement. The corridors were carpeted with bodies that were quickly renewing themselves. Half-alive corpses reached for his legs as he raced by them. He darted through the corridors that led to the underground tunnel into the library. Hastings stood at the end of the tunnel. His gun was drawn and he was looking into the reading room of the library basement. Hastings! He cried once more. Hastings motioned him forward and Weissman ran the length of the corridor. The chief's hair was spread over his head as if he had just awoken and he had a large bruise on his cheek. This is crazy! He yelled as Weissman came up to him. Are you all right, Dan? asked Weissman. Oh yeah, I'm just great! He scoffed. I guess your friend was right after all. It's not important now, Dan. What the hell's causing all this? The whole town, it's the power plant. Old man Pendleton, he did something to the time and space around the plant. Now how do you know that? I asked questions, Dan. I talked to a physics professor in Concord. They're using something called universal. Hastings fired the gun at a man with a broken bottle and who collapsed midway down the corridor. Only two bullets left, Bernie, Hastings told him. Dan, where's Mata? Where is she? I don't know. Look, if you say it's the plant that's causing all this, then we should get over there and destroy the damn place. I agree, but I'm getting to Mata first. Don't be a fool, Weissman. Let's get to the plant. That in itself is risky enough. Don't go looking for the girl. I'm going. She must have come this way. Weissman, why do you always have to be so damn stubborn? Three more attackers advanced from the reading room. Without thinking, Hastings unloaded the chamber of his gun. Two of them dropped to the carpet, and Weissman ran ahead, leveling the third man with the pipe. Come on, Hastings, let's go. We have to stay together now. We may be the only ones left he said as he ran through the reading room. Yes, I know that, said the chief as he followed. Up the stairs, commanded Weissman as Hastings threw the gun across the floor. There were several of them milling around the library lobby. Weissman swung the pipe with reckless abandon and Hastings used his bare hands. They made their way through the jagged window glass and out into the night. Mata, Mata, Weissman called in vain. How the hell are you going to find her? demanded Hastings as he surveyed the campus. Look at this place. I've got to find her, even if I have to search this whole town. Oh, boy, he said as Weissman began running toward an adjacent building. This is the English department building, if I remember correctly. You're not going in there, are you? Yes, and so are you. I'll go in the front, you go in the back, and we'll meet out here. Not wise said Hastings, shaking his head. Several groups of people had spotted them and were slowly advancing toward the two men. If you want to stay here, then go ahead, said Weissman as he ran to the back of the building. Marta had gotten to her feet on the second floor. They were thrashing at the metal door. She ran through the second floor rooms, desperately searching for a way out. 
the far side, she found a second stairwell surrounding the elevator shafts. The staircase spiraled upward for 26 floors to the top of the building. It was lined with graffiti up its white walls, just like when she went to school here. As she climbed upward, the memories of years ago came flying back, and memories of Jamie. She had never envisioned, when she had carried her books up these stairs, that she would someday be running for her life in the very same place. It was hopeless now. She had no weapons, no defense, and no way to get down. She could only listen to her instincts telling her to run, 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 get away, no matter what the cost, get away. It was unusually quiescent toward the top of the building. With only the sound of her footsteps and heavy breathing, she opened the door to the 26th floor. She was safe, but absolutely taking no chances. Her security was only as good as the strength of the door. After locking it, she pushed the empty metal stacks back toward the door. In a matter of minutes, she had wedged the stacks between the door and the outside wall. Unless Jamie, with his superior force, came up the stairs, she would probably be able to hold them off. The elevator doors were wide open, however, as she pulled a bracket off the stacks. Quickly, she ran over and pounded at the elevator switch. The switch became dislodged and she hacked the wires away. She had effectively cut off another means of their entry. From the window, she could see the entire town below. The hospital was in flames now, as well as a slew of houses leading to the center. The town itself had assumed an eerie orange glow from the central blaze. Maybe the town would be repaired, she thought, but it would burn again and again and again, just like the station wagon in the farmhouse. Hell, hell, it's hell. Can this really be happening? Just from that one area under the plant, can it really be true? Beings, tiny, incomprehensible beings coming across time and space. What kind of a race are they? What kind of a world can they have? And Weissman, where is Bernie? He must be back here by now, if he's not dead. Bernie, Bernie, she yelled out and started to cry. In the solitude, all her emotions came to the surface. The terror weekend, the massive death, all the people of the town are dead. My children, part of all these things, these bundles, mother and father dead. Don't they understand what they're doing to us? This isn't the way we're supposed to be. What kind of a race are they? Oh God, oh God, they're coming. They're coming to kill me. They're coming to kill me. Help me, somebody help me. They began smashing the door. Minutes passed and the door was still holding. I've outsmarted you, she cried as the tears rolled down her cheeks. You can't break it, go ahead and try. You can't do it, you can't. She could hear her father's voice. We have come for you, Martha, shouted Albert Dupont as the door began to give way. Join us, Martha, join us, Martha, said her brother Ben. Marta raced for the metal stairs that led to the roof. They were attached to the ceiling and she pulled them down. She hurried up the metal hatchway, pushing it upward, and the freezing air came rushing inside. She had crawled through and was onto the roof. Then she shut it tight, pulled the lever, and locked it. She ran across the slippery gravel of the roof and made her way to the edge. Twenty-seven stories below, she could see bodies scattered around the campus. Those who were functioning had not stopped fighting. The place was one big battlefield. Help me! Help me! she called. 
Hastings, who had come to the front steps of the English building, looked upward. She saw a solitary figure calling in the night. It's her, he said as he turned and stepped inside. Weissman! Weissman! There was a doorway to the roof in the center of the building. She could hear them thrashing at it, and they were beginning to work on the hatchway. The end seemingly had come for her so many times before, yet she had gotten away. She could only stand there and await her fate. The top door, with each thud, she could visualize the blunt end crushing her face. Maybe she shouldn't give him the chance to smash her into unconsciousness. She could end it all before they even came to the roof. The fall might be so severe that the bundles might not be able to repair her body. She looked at the hatchway and then over to the door. Slowly, she inched her way closer and closer to the edge of the library roof. The mighty air currents threatened to lift her aloft. No, I'm not giving up. I will not give in to them. I'll fight them. I'll fight them if I have to stand here with my bare hands. She stepped back and faced the door. The forest was almost insurmountable as they broke through. The look of death resided in their glowing eyes, like the glare of the fox who has his prey backed into the corner. A man whom she had never seen stepped forward. In his hands was a saber sword, perhaps stolen from a collection at the college. His face was covered with an oozing pus from cracked blisters. Are you ready to die? He asked, and he waved the sword around his head. Yes, you will. You know life in death. You people are crazy, she said as she backed up. Step by step, the rest of the group moved with her. From the air currents, she could sense she was only a few feet away from the edge of the building. Don't you dare resist now, cried the man with the sword. He held it upward, the blade glistening in the moonlight. Leave me alone. I will not die. But you will die, he told her as they all circled around her. It was as if they were tempting her to experience the exhilaration of her own death. They had elevated death not only to a form of worship, but necessity. And the heels of her shoes were already over the edge of the building. Just a strong gust of wind could end it all. Death will be welcome. No, cried a voice from behind. Hastings, carrying a massive wooden club, emerged from the doorway. He yelled wildly as he ran toward them. They spun away from Mater and toward the man who seemed even more vicious than they were. Hastings broke the circle and knocked several of them to the roof. You beckon death, cried the man with the saber sword as he raised it again. Hastings was proficient in his moves. He hit the sword right from the man's hands and thrust the club into his stomach. Using it as a ramrod, he ran the man right over the edge of the building. Marta jaunted forward just as Weissman came through the doorway. Marta, he said as Hastings pulled her forward. You saved my life, Bernie. But they hit Hastings from behind. He turned with the club in his hand and fought them as Marta ran to Weissman. They all wrestled precariously toward the edge, and Weissman, lifting up the pipe, rushed to help the chief. Hastings threw them off to the side. The other two men drove him right to the edge of the building. Weissman dove through the air, his fingertips grabbing the back of Hastings' shoes. But the chief and the two men careened over the edge of the library roof and out of sight. Oh, God, God, no, said Weissman from the roof. Bernie, she cried as she ran over to him. I had him. I had his shoes. 
said the teary-eyed Weissman. I could have saved him, Martyr. One more second and I would have saved him. He's dead, Bertie. He's dead. He's gone. Weissman turned as a man next to him lurched toward his neck. He batted him away. Once on his feet, he picked up the saber sword. Mitchie and Sandy. Okay, Mata, we're going over to Mrs. Dooley's right now. Then we'll go out to the plant. The plant, Bernie? Let's just get the hell out of here. No, we have to stop this, Mata, he said as he took her by the hand and led her below. They ran from the first floor elevator. The lobby was mostly clear of attackers, but they were able to skirt around the attackers as they move outside. People were dying and being revitalized all around. And when they reached the other side of the administration building, close to 20 people were bashing at Hastings' cruiser. I'll go around the other side, he said, giving her the keys to the Porsche. When they come after me, get in the Porsche and drive by them. I'll get in. Don't be afraid. Just keep moving slowly. You can always go faster than they can. She nodded and slowly moved to the right. Weissman, brandishing the sword, began taunting them as he circled to the left. Hey, I'm right here. You want me dead? Then come get me. They stopped what they were doing and directed their attentions to Weissman. Slowly, in short, jerky motions, they came at him. In the meantime, Marta ran down the sidewalk to the Porsche and got in the car. That's right! That's right! exclaimed Weissman as he backed up. Come on! Come on! Marta whipped the car around the cruiser. Weissman ran ahead like a runner in a relay race, trying to catch the baton. Marta drove up on the snow, pushing open the passenger side door as she neared the running Weissman. He fought off another attacker, thrusting the sword through the attacker's abdomen. Another man leaped onto the moving car. As she spun across the snow, Weissman maneuvered himself inside the Porsche. They moved back on the road and pulled away from the college. But the violence continued throughout the town. The only way to put an end to it all would be to destroy the universal power plant itself. Mrs. Dooley refused to leave her back bedroom on the small hill away from the road. Marta hugged Mitchie and Sandy, and Weissman lifted them into the air and down into the Porsche. They quickly headed out the side roads out of town. The power plant had been running at full capacity when it had only been designed for short-term use. Despite Minos's late adjustments, the entire system was on overload and threatened to rip apart. With the kids in Weissman's lap, Marta drove the Porsche down the river road at an incredible speed. As the plant was in the first stages of breaking down, the ground began to rumble as if a devastating earthquake was about to take place. She had to slow the car just enough to be able to keep it on the road. There were other signs of the pending disaster. The plant, visible in the distance, was exhuming huge amounts of steam and smoke into the air. Sections of the lower building seemed to be crumbling and the river was beginning to be diverted from its course along the lower lying areas. What's happening, Bertie? She asked as they both looked ahead. Head for the highway now! But she couldn't move the car. It must have been Jamie somewhere in the town, and he must have taken over the car's mobility. It was not like before when he boosted the car's speed out of control. This time he was slowly drawing the car into the flames in the center of town. He must have surrounded the car with the force they were unable to get out. Ground moved violently. Whole sections of asphalt came thrusting upward, but the car moved either around or over them like a magnet 
being drawn to a stronger source. Push moved through the side streets of St. Argus, moving backwards as Weissman banged the saber against the glass. He slowly stopped his attempt at escape as the car entered the center of town. The square in the center of St. Argus was burning like the gates of hell. Every building in town was aflame, and around the outskirts hundreds of people had gathered, with more coming in from other parts of the town. Porsche was dragged off the road and onto the snow under the rockery. Standing atop the rockery like a conquering king, Jamie Pendleton spread his arms over the throng. Uh, death, he said as the Porsche doors sprung off the hinges and onto the snow. The death has arrived for now. They had no choice but to get out of the car. Weissman got out of the car and grabbed the two children in his arms and moved up to Martyr. With his power, Jamie pulled them outward and into the snow. The ground rumbled beneath them, and the heat from the fires melted the snow all around. From the sides, all the people began to close in on them, led by the DuPont family. Hastings, who had died at the base of the library, led a group on their left and was personally yelling and cursing the only two humans left alive. The only notable missing, strangely enough, was the perpetrator of the entire madness, James Pendleton I. Flames of hell burn brightly in St. Argus, cried a voice from the top of the bell tower in the church steeple. McAllister, apparently, had merged with the creatures and had tied a rope from the top beam. At the other end of that rope was a hangman's noose. He stuck his head inside and tightened the knot. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their inequity. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant. I will lay low the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make men more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth shall be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. With his final words, the reverend leaped from the steeple, and the rope broke apart against his windpipe. The earth was indeed shaking, and Jamie's patience was at an end. Let your deadly nightmare begin, shouted Jamie. Weissman and Marta could not move from the spot in front of the rockery. Jamie was not going to let them go as the mob closed in on them. Each person seemed to be armed with a club, bottle, rock, or an effective weapon of death, and their collective shouting only added to the feeling that a painful death lurked just ahead. Marta was hit first, driven to the ground by a club, and Weissman felt the long blade of a knife pierce into his leg. As the blood oozed from Weissman, he covered the kids to protect them from harm. The people converged on each other, fighting amongst themselves as the exalted Jamie watched over them. Hell would be a welcome respite to any one of the citizens of St. Argus, New Hampshire. But the power plant could not withstand further use of the universal power, and the Amenti regions, under the town itself, began to blow apart like an active volcano. And if the Amenti regions were severed, the creatures would die in the alien world called Earth. Jamie's body jerked violently as if he had been administered a respectable electrical shock. The red circles in his eyes pulsated and his mouth opened wide. In just a few seconds, the red light faded from view. And this man, who had been the first to have been possessed by these creatures, fell to the cement. He was categorically dead. The creature had fled from his body. 
All around the square they dropped as each individual bundle of light fled back to the warped region of space and time. The entire town of St. Argus lay dead around the common. Weissman, his head bashed and bleeding, grabbed the kids and held them firmly in his arms as he rose to his feet. Weissman jaunted along the rockery and opened the door to the Porsche and put the kids in the front seat. The clock tower rang out five times. He struggled around the side of the car and saw Martyr lying in a pool of blood. Although in great pain, he bent over and lifted her into his arms. No, you can't be dead. Not now. Not when it's ending. Martyr! Martyr! He called, but she didn't answer. The stones tumbled from the rockery now. Huge chunks of burning buildings came crashing down all around him. Weissman had to get in the Porsche right away or he too would be as dead as the people around him. He carried Marta to the car and placed her gently on the seat. It's okay, kids. We're getting out of here. We're getting out of here. The town was literally breaking apart as he jumped in the driver's seat. He maneuvered the Porsche directly under the rockery arc. An entire section came crashing down as he skidded out the other side and across the common to the road. It was a constant battle to weave around the people and objects in the road, as well as to compete with the shaking pavement. Trees, telephone lines, and buildings tumbled to the ground as he sped down the highway and out of town. The mighty river had flooded over by McAllister's house, and a 20-foot tidal wave of water moved back toward the burning center of town. The whole valley was on the verge of collapsing inward. A few early flickers of daylight came over the hills as Weissman brought the battered Porsche past the farmer's fields and up into the mountains. He gazed at Marta's unmoving body in the back seat. It had all been in vain. He was drawn away from Marta by a group of dead bodies on the highway at the base of the mountain hill. Apparently quite a skirmish was taking place as the creatures fled. Weissman gently pushed the kids' heads down toward the seat as he approached a sign up ahead. The bloody head of old man Pendleton was affixed to the top of the sign. His mouth was open wide and dripping with the remaining blood from his severed body. The only words visible on the sign were, Welcome to Pendleton. Even the sign, along with the mushy head of the old man, crashed to the ground. Weissman accelerated the Porsche up the hill. The underlying mountain rocks seemed sturdier and out of range of the underground Amenti regions. The sun illuminated the cataclysm below as he turned into the rest area by the side of the road. He lifted the kids off the seat and tried to explain to them that their mother was just sleeping as he moved across the rest area and leaned over the stone walls as he gazed below. Smoke and debris were being hurled into the blue sky. The river, now covering most of the town, suddenly began to drain inward as if the entire valley sunk away before his eyes and then slowly surged upward in a thick mixture of mud. The town and valley had been decimated, but the seemingly endless nightmare was over. He buried his head in his hands. His tears dropped onto the stone wall. In his torment, he had failed to hear the door of the Porsche open. Martyr lifted his head up into the morning sun. Mommy! yelled the kids as they turned and ran toward Martyr as she exited the car and slowly moved over to Weissman. His face brightened with a new vitality, a lifelong vitality, as he thrust his battered arms around her. They turned toward the awakening land and the new world that lay before them. The lights began to twinkle from the rocks. 
The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs. Deep moan rounds with many voices. Come, my friends. Tis not too late to seek a new world. Push off and sitting well in order smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and baths of all the western stars until I die. Ulysses, Alfred Lord Tennyson. Thank you for listening to My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Copyright 2023 by the Robert P. Fitton Revocable Trust. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.